1995, Pope St. John Paul II visited Baltimore on his apostolic journey to the United States, and he celebrated Mass at Orioles Park in Camden Yard. In his homily, he offered this very simple but profound insight. He said, democracy cannot be sustained without a shared commitment to certain moral truths about the human person and the human community. John Paul used the term democracy as a kind of shorthand for what might be more precisely called a liberal or secular constitutional order, meaning a government like our own that is not formally committed to any particular religious or moral outlook, but rather shaped by enlightenment liberalism, and so sees itself as simply providing a juridical framework for citizens to pursue their own ends. Such a government is not therefore concerned with the moral or religious betterment of its people, but only with governing society so that each person can enjoy their rights and freedoms and not interfere with the rights and freedoms of others. It's what Thomas Jefferson meant when he said that government was instituted to secure for people the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Among these rights, it was generally agreed that freedom of religion was the most important. So that all sounds good in theory. And in practice, from its founding, the United States, compared to most other nations, enjoyed a relatively peaceful religious diversity. Minority religions, and especially the Catholic Church, generally, not always, but generally, fared well in America for two reasons. One, there was, as St. John Paul alluded to, a shared commitment to certain moral truths that the church shared with the wider American community. Secondly, government itself generally had a much smaller role in public life, such that institutions like the Catholic Church could operate according to their own precepts, even if those sometimes conflicted with the values of the larger society. But in the course of the last century, and increasingly since John Paul gave his homily in 1995, the relative protection offered by those two factors has eroded significantly in this country. First, the shared commitment to certain moral truths has given way to the contemporary situation, in which people hold widely divergent views on the most fundamental moral and metaphysical questions whether that's about human life, or procreation, or marriage, or sexuality, or gender, or personal responsibility, or many, many other issues. Secondly, sometimes for good reasons, oftentimes for not so good reasons, it's the case that over the course of the last century, the role of government in regulating public life has become much more extensive, such that religious institutions like the Catholic Church which engages in a wide variety of activities, not just for worship, but also runs institutions to provide education and healthcare and charity and other social services, and is increasingly regulated by laws that sometimes conflict with Christian principles. And so that's why we find ourselves at the urging of our nation's bishops, observing a fortnight for freedom two weeks in which we pray, fast, work, and educate ourselves on the pressing issues of religious freedom 
facing our church and our nation. But here's the dirty little secret. Protecting freedom of religion sounds great, but it's only one half of the equation. Ultimately, the question of religious freedom is bound up with the very concept of truth itself. Constitutional guarantees only go so far. Freedom of religion is only workable if most people see the differences allowed under the umbrella of religion as being respectable. For example, let's say there was a Jewish school that employed a teacher who was Jewish, but then that teacher desired to become Christian and he or she received baptism. So the school fires the teacher. Now, I'm perfectly fine with that. I don't consider that anti-Christian. I regard it as a respectable and workable decision by the Jewish school to operate according to their Jewish standards, even if that works to the detriment of the now Christian teacher. But let's say by contrast, some religious organization was engaging in human sacrifice or enslaving people. Well, that's where any sane person would draw the line. Freedom of religion is not a license to act contrary to the human life and dignity of others. But unfortunately, that's exactly the tenor at which debates in our society about religious freedom are pitched. Because to many ideologues, a Christian school that removes a teacher who contradicts the Christian faith, say by advocating for or entering into a same-sex marriage, is unlawfully discriminating against her or him or her. No different, they would argue, then, if that school fired somebody because of their race. Or imagine a Catholic hospital, which refuses to engage in certain actions that are contrary to the dignity of human life, say by performing abortions or offering euthanasia. Again, many would now argue that the church is thereby depriving that patient of adequate health care and thus committing medical malpractice. The same as if a doctor refused to stitch someone up who is bleeding out their neck. We end up debating these fundamental questions merely as issues of religious freedom that either are or are not protected by the First Amendment. The problem, though, is that resolving these competing values is ultimately intractable apart from some shared consensus, not just about what the Constitution says or means, but about the substance of what is morally right or morally wrong. St. John Paul II also said in 1995, today the challenge facing America is to find freedom's fulfillment in the truth, the truth that is intrinsic to human life created in the image and likeness of God, and, like, and the truth that is written on the human heart, the truth that can be known by reason and therefore can form the basis for a profound and universal dialogue among people about the direction that they must give to their lives and their actions. In regards to that challenge, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is that our society is only becoming increasingly fractured around these questions. Thus, the hope that there will ever be that shared consensus about the moral truth that makes a just common life possible for those of differing religious and non-religious outlooks is increasingly elusive. The good news is, well, depending on your point of view, maybe it's just more bad news. 
For us as Christians, conflict with secular and anti-Christian forces in our larger society really should be thought of as situation normal. Jesus said, if the world hates you, realize that it hated me first. Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia recently released a book called Strangers in a Strange Land. That phrase should be a motto for Christians. Our Lord never promised us that our faith would mean blessing, tolerance, or even basic justice from the society in which we would find ourselves. As our Lord said in the gospel today, our hope is not in how we are treated in this world, which is not to say that we are indifferent to this life or that we give up the work of advancing truth or trying to create a just society. It's not even to say that we should just passively accept persecution or marginalization on account of our Christian faith, but that we recognize that the measure of our efforts is not necessarily victory in winning the public debate, as wonderful as that would be. Rather, the only sure thing that we are promised for our efforts by Christ is that everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge them before my heavenly Father. In witnessing to our faith and society, that is ultimately the only thing that matters. Do we stand by our Christian faith and live for the truth, no matter the situation and no matter the consequences? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.